Welcome everyone to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And this is the first time you're seeing us. If you're seeing us um, uh, on our video, we are the co-hosts of the Dirt on the Past podcast. And this week we're in a completely new location. We're so excited to announce that we're collaborating with the Museum of the Rockies. And today we are in this incredibly cool studio they have right down in the dinosaur hall and we are going to be bringing you a new version of the podcast called the dirt on the past the museum edition oh yes oh yes <laughs> so these podcasts will be more than just podcasts um we're being filmed we're actually being videoed in this um great studio that has been decorated to look like sort of what Charles Darwin's office may have looked like. We did not attempt to make it historically accurate. Ashley decorated this thing and brought in um, cast specimens of all different kinds of things and fossils. There's tools in here, there's maps in here, there's all sorts of great things and it's very inspirational. So it's a great background for us. But in each of these museum edition episodes, we are going to be showcasing artifacts from the Museum of the Rockies collection. And we're going to be having conversations with experts in those fields. So for our first museum edition today, we are joined today by Chelsea Hogan. Ashley Hall had to leave today, um, so we'll be roping her in another day. And they both work in the education department at the Museum of the Rockies. And Rylan Brunkhart is running the show from behind the scenes there, in front of the scenes and then back to behind the scenes. <laughs> and so hopefully Riley will be, Rylan will be able to take care of um, any technical issues that we're likely to have, right, Crystal? Okay. Exactly. So yeah, so they brainstormed this collaboration with us and we're really excited to be doing this all together. We do have another person in the room who's responsible for actually bringing artifacts out from the collection and that's Michael Fox. And there he is making a tiny little cameo. <laughs> Yay, Michael. Um, so uh, we are going to uh, get started and talk about what um, today's podcast is about. So I'll turn it over to you, Crystal. All right. Well, we're so excited to have this opportunity to podcast from this ama amazing studio space. And thanks to you, Chelsea and Ashley and Rylan and Michael and the Museum of the Rockies for allowing us and, and making this happen. We're excited to move forward with the Museum of the Rockies and the museum edition of this podcast because we know how many artifacts are in the collections of the Museum of the Rockies that often will never see the light of day. So we have been down there. We, we've, we've been, been down there doing real research yeah. and there's some good <laughs> stuff down there, right? So yeah. this is going to be a great opportunity to be able to showcase some of those objects, some of those artifacts that may never be included in an exhibit. So it's super exciting. So thank you guys. Of course, it's such a pleasure. Yay. And of course, we're here at the E.L. Wiegan Digital Learning Studio. It's a brand new studio that we just opened a few months ago, and we're still figuring out all the many ways that we can use it. And so this is such a pleasure for us we're to work with our friends. We're getting first in line, exactly. Yeah. 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 So this is so much fun. I'm really, really excited to dig in. Well, thanks, Chelsea. Pun intended. Yeah. Oh, I got it. The dirt on the path. I know this is going to be a good one tonight. Okay. So for our first museum episode, we are going to focus on a topic that is near and dear to our hearts. Crystal, we're going to be talking about um, the fact that Extreme History Headquarters are open in the Red Light District in 
Bozeman. And that is a topic that also Chelsea and Ashley have been focused on for the Museum of the Rockies for the upcoming season of Haunted Mountain Theater, which we're going to talk about a little bit more later. But the topic is historical sex work in Western red light districts. And um, Chelsea, maybe you can start by telling us about the Haunted Mountain Theater and why in particular this year, it relates to Butte's red light district, specifically the Dumas brothel. Absolutely. Well, the Haunted Mountain Theater program started in 2019 by our executive director, Chris Dobbs, who comes from a history museum and a theater background. And he's been doing this kind of programming in museums for about 25 years. So, um, you know, uh, before I was born. Um, and <laughs> so this is right. All of us were we'll just like the whole group with that. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the, the sort of the point of Haunted Mountain Theater is to teach history through theater. So we are very, very focused on trying to be as authentic as possible while also being entertaining. And it always happens around Halloween time. So it's also important that it's spooky. Oh, this sounds like a great way to learn history. <laughs> yeah, and history can really be spooky. Fun. Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah. it's a special program too, because not only is it a live theater production, but it also incorporates all of the um, amenities of the Taylor Planetarium, oh. which is the only planetarium in Montana. And uh, there's also a component at the 1890s Tinsley House. And this year we're having a Victorian Halloween party. Oh, and we're also having Extreme History Tom, yes. which we can talk about a little bit later. Um, but my colleague Rylan and I are uh, producing it along with Chris Dobbs. Wow. And um, we are always just trying to think about what's interesting, what's compelling, and what's scary about Montana's history. And as you know, we don't really have to look that far because Montana has a really kind of crazy and complicated and sometimes horrific history. Indeed. <laughs> and, uh, Indeed. Yeah. you know, we were really compelled, you know, for me, if I can just say, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if you relate to this or not, I think you do. Um, but as a woman, especially thinking about sex work, I think you can't help but sort of say, like, how far would I go? Would I ever do that? Or what, what would that be like? You can sort of so easily imagine yourself, um, even if you don't fully know the complexities of it, you kind of... Uh, automatically are intrigued you wonder what these women's lives were like exactly. especially during these times where these new towns were being settled in the west yeah exactly yeah. and so when we're talking about scary montana history certainly brothel culture is right in line and then we have the dumas brothel which is as we'll discuss the longest running or it was it's no longer open for business true very so important don't point. try to go there anyone in our i mean you can go there but not for services yes um it, it did close in 1982 uh but the longest running house of ill repute in the entire country and it is famously known to be haunted so there are a lot of cool ghost stories that surround the dumas brothel and Rylan and I, um, I were, if I can speak for you, Rylan, <laughs> we're really specifically compelled, um, you know, just thinking about as we dug further into it, as we visited it, as we dug into the archives, really looking at the complexities of the women's experience or, or you know, trying to imagine ourselves. And Rylan actually um, 
really took the helm and wrote most of, uh, if not really all, I mean, we, we really credit her with that section of our play. So we have uh, six different vignettes that all relate to Montana history. And the who killed Eleanor not story is the big finale that takes place in the Dumas brothel. Okay, so. and we'll hear a little bit more about that as Absolutely. we get into it. But so the Dumas brothel then is really the central kind of uh, focus place of where Haunted Mountain Theater is gonna be having. Yes, it's, it's exciting. Absolutely. And so, this question of who killed this oh, madam. No, yeah, so I, I highly recommend if it's not all sold out, people try to go. But we're gonna give you a little bit of background then on brothel culture, red light districts in Bozeman and in Butte, and maybe even pulling in from some podcasts we've had earlier where we've talked about um, Los Angeles and other places in the West. Uh, so Crystal, um, the Dumas brothel that Chelsea was just talking about is essentially built about the same year as the brothel that Extreme History is headquartered in, in Bozeman's old red light district. Correct. So remind us again about the history of the house, sort of like the, the who, why, what, when, sort of who built it, why was it built, um, and how long it was in use as a parlor house. And then maybe we can discuss a little bit about how it compares to the Dumas and look at the Dumas too. So um, yeah, just tell Rylan when you want to pull up a slide of it too. Yeah. yeah. So um, like Nancy said, our extreme history project headquarters is located within a historic brothel. And you're seeing a photograph of the, the building now. So this building was built in 1891 and the Dumas in Butte was built in 1890. So very similar time periods that these two brothels opened. And ours, I'll tell you a little bit more about ours because of course I know a little bit more about ours, but it was built in 1891 by a gentleman whose name was Joseph Lindley. Now, Joseph Lindley was kind of a, um, he was a real estate broker. He was into cattle ranching. He was a fairly wealthy member of Bozeman's business elite. And so he, the reason that he built this, this interesting is because um, Montana had become a state in 1889. And uh, when they were deciding where the capital of the state was going to be, they opened it up to uh, a vote. And so they, they were voting on which city in Montana was going to get the capital. And of course, Bozeman was vying for the capital building, as was Butte, as was Anaconda, as was Helena, Virginia City, all these different places, about seven cities were vying to become the capital of Montana. And Thinking you bring a lot of money to, to this, a the lot town, of money right? Would come yeah, in power, if, money. If you got that capital built, um, that capital in your town. So a couple of other of our businessmen here in Bozeman, one being Nelson Story, was really beautifying our Main Street. So they were building a lot of brick buildings on Main Street. And so Nelson Story made a deal with Joseph Lindley. Joseph Lindley owned the land that this brothel um, was eventually built on. And he said, if you build and pay for, uh, or if you build a brothel on that property, I will pay for it. And so they made this handshake deal. And so that's what happened. Nelson Story gave Joseph Lindley the money. Joseph Lindley built this two-story brothel and it opened for business in 1891. Um, and But there was a there was an agreement between the two that if we got the capital, Joseph Lindley would not have to pay Nelson Story back. Oh, but Nelson. if we, we, we did get the capital, 
Lindley had to pay um, Nelson's story back. Well, of course, we didn't get the capital in Bozeman. Helena got the capital. So Joseph Lindley was supposed to pay Nelson's story back, but he never did that. And so a couple of years down the road, Nelson's story sued him for this money and in return got the house. And so Nelson's so Nelson story then owned it for a few years. So Joseph Lindley was the builder. Then it went to Nelson's story. He owned it for a time. And then he transferred it to his son who owned it for a time. And then in about 1918, or no, I'm sorry, 1913, Nelson's story's son sold it. So that's kind of the ownership. So this brothel was always owned by during its its heyday was always owned by a man, but it was occupied by women. And one woman who we know was the madam for many years, her name was Libby Hayes. And so she was the madam of this building, um, probably from about 1900 to her death in 1913. And so she was a um, woman who had grown up in Kentucky. She came out West with her two other sisters, so Libby, Hattie, and Maddie, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> they all three sisters worked in Bozeman's red light district. Libby worked in this house and Hattie and Maddie worked in other houses in, in Bozeman. And so, but Libby worked in this house most of her time here and until about 1912, um, like I said, she died in 1913. She, in 1912, she must have saved enough money. She bought the property right next door to this house and moved there. Yeah, can we go back to the slide, yeah. Rylan? Because I would love, Crystal, can you tell us, we have a box there yeah. around the, yeah, the building. And just yeah. to say, I mean, that's a very handsome house it is. this this parlor house is a nice looking two-story structure it's amazing to me that it was so out in the open and they're trying to beautify the red light district you know like yeah. that was seen everywhere and we see this going on everywhere in these towns around montana beautifying the red light district was part of what you needed to yeah. convince people you could have the right. capital not getting which rid is of a little weird district, not hiding it no yeah, and not getting rid of it exactly so it's very it's that open thing where it's not it's not legal right mm -hmm. but it's but it's supposed to be in this area so can you talk about some of the other buildings on that map too yeah. and, and what else was around there because you didn't have just like your neighbor was Mr. Lindley himself right, or something. Right. So talk a little bit about that. So so what you're looking at right now is a what we call a Sanborn map. And Sanborn fire insurance maps were created by the Sanborn Fire Insurance Company. And they were basically for fire insurance claims. So that's why you see the different colors on there. The yellow um, represents wood frame buildings, the pink represents brick buildings, and the blue represents stone buildings. And you'll see that our building has the red box around it and it is pink so it's a brick building so that what is originally what our building was was brick it's been stuccoed over in the last probably in the 1930s 1940s they um they put stucco on the outside to kind of keep it standing because the brick is often um deteriorating at that time but the red light district is encompassed within the um kind of that that picture that you see right there on the kind of the north side of that street. And so a lot of those buildings that you're seeing there are um, houses of prostitution. And then also the Chinese community lived right in that area as well. So where all the buildings that surround our building are occupied by either Chinese or other houses of prostitution. 
So, um, so that is what the red light district was. It's kind of where all the vice was contained, all the vice in the city mm -hmm. of Bozeman, and they were often called restricted districts. And so um, a lot of town people and members of the community like to put all the vice, you know, all the saloons, the houses of prostitution, the, the Chinese all together in one part of town because then they could contain it. So yeah. that, you know, the upper class women didn't have to worry about a house of ill repute kind of popping up in, in the house next to them in the good part of town. It was all going to be right here. And then the police could kind of monitor and, and contain that as well. Right. So, yeah. Right. Oh. So that's a little bit about our house and a little bit about the our historic building and the history of that historic building and this woman, you know, going back to Libby Hayes, who lived in this building and worked out of this building. There was a lot of other women who worked under her in prostitution, and we know their names, but we don't know a lot about them. We know more about Libby Hayes because she owned property. She owned um, goods. And so when she died, she left a will and they did a probate record. So we have a lot of information from that probate record. So a lot of the women who worked under her as prostitutes were more transitory. They often didn't use their real names. So we don't have as much information about them. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That is so fascinating. <laughs> and Nancy, I know that you've done a lot of digging into the prostitution history. And maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how the Dumas got started and if there are similarities and differences. Yeah. And it was very interesting to me because I've been hearing a lot about Crystal's research um, over the years uh, about Bozeman. And we've heard a little bit on a previous podcast. It's Anne Marie Koistra, right? Mm -hmm. That's a that's a really good yeah. one. And then to be able to dig into Butte a little, as soon as you talked about the Dumas, I was like a dog on a bone with that. So that's super great. And maybe Rylan, if we can go to the next slide, let's take a look. So there is an image of the Dumas from the outside as it looks today. And you can see it says 1890 when it was built there right at the top. So pretty fancy architecture. And then again, we have these Sanborn insurance maps and the blow up of this one, this is a 1961 that they happen to have laying out there. So I snapped a photo of it and I have a, an arrow pointing to where on East Mercury Street. But in terms of the history, I really, um, went to Ellen Baumler's overview of sort of this whole vice district in Butte that she had published in 1998 in, which was the magazine, do you remember? It was Crystal? the Montana Magazine of Western History. Yeah, and it's a, it's a fantastic article and it's available online, I think, if people want to access it, yeah. maybe. Yeah, okay, we'll talk about how you can get it later. Yeah. But but what we know from the research that Ellen and others have done in the archives there at Butte, because they have wonderful archives, is that Butte in the 1870s was really getting going with, with mining. And it was really just kind of tents and camps in the 1870s. And there weren't a lot of formal buildings yet, but it was starting to be late. So this was a little bit north. So if we look at East Mercury Street on that map, and then you look at the, there's an alleyway behind where the Dumas would have been on that. And then the, the street to the north of that is Galena Street. 
the street north of that is Park Street. And that was where you had all these tents and camps first beginning. And north of Park Street was where all these mines were, where people were finding gold, silver, and just starting to get into copper in the in 1870s and 1880s. Well, during the 1880s, um, things start to get a little more formal. So in the 1870s, women were just outside and they called them the women of the line that would wait outside the mines, outside of the tent camps. And then with the 1880s, as they started to formalize these streets a bit more and build some buildings, the, that got pushed down to Park Street. And then literally as we get mid 1880s into 1890s, you have Galena Street, which on that eastern half of the street that very building on the corner is called the um cooper block building and that housed a saloon that i think you said was run by dirty mouth jean yes dirty yeah mouth jean. which we just had to get that in there because that's quite a name <laughs> right i know and actually the owners of that building are the same folks that built the dumas so these were two brothers arthur and joseph they were um nadu they were french canadians so i don't know if i'm saying that right but Joseph's wife was Delia and her original name was Dumas. So they named it the Dumas. And apparently this was pretty common for men to name after she cared if it was a brothel or not, because the Dumas was built specifically to be a brothel. And it was built on Mercury because that was right when, as you said, places are vying for the capital. Butte was one of them and they were kind of beautifying. So in the 1880s, you had, you had the beginning in Butte because Butte was like any other red light district on steroids, pretty yes. much rivaled anywhere except, you know, kind of maybe what we think of as Vegas sometimes, but <laughs> it just crazy. And, and it was the biggest city in between Chicago and San Francisco in the US and just incredibly wealthy by the time we're getting into the 1880s and 90s. So you had a lot of burlesque and vaudeville theater going on where things were out in the open. People were drinking in theaters, performing. There was probably also prostitution. There was the theater comique and then that got closed down. It became the current metals building and everything got pushed south again mm -hmm. to kind of sandwich it in in that east Mercury street so uh, eventually across from the dumas you get built just a row of these things called cribs not a nice parlor house like your offices yeah. your current offices <laughs> in bozeman not like the dumas or the hotel victoria and the windsor hotel all these other beautiful buildings that were also on mercury street so you did have um just this row of of rooms that were door window door window very small rooms facing the street that's the blue range that was built in 1897 so things though after um 1910 start to get a little seedier and that's when we start getting people like Carrie Nation and Crusaders coming to town trying to get rid of the the vice and and the temperance movement and all of that and and Butte's not really having any of it you know there's some people trying but it's not really working because they're making a lot of money off of this district they are paying over 2000 a month into the coffers so there's just kind of no way they can afford to shut it down right and and sorry to interject Go but ahead. Yeah. when you say making a lot of money i mean you're not just meaning like the business owners or the prostitutes or anything like that you're talking about the city talking itself about the city the collection like from the whole the vice district and, and the police exactly yeah. so the mayor and it's going to help run the city basically and again they're trying to keep it to mercury street the alleyway behind it a 
little bit on Galena and and sort of that that side of Wyoming Street there too. And so everything is is over there. Um, we start seeing that to take advantage of more miners coming in and all of these um, opportunities to make more money, that there's an addition put on the back in 1913 of the Dumas, finished in 1914. That adds a whole bunch of cribs out the back all the way onto the alleyway, which eventually becomes um, called Venus Alley. And there's cribs or windows and doors that prostitutes are working out of facing that alley right behind the red arrow. And then eventually in 1924, they end up remodeling the interior of the Dumas to create more cribs inside and taking away the fancy parlor house and bar and things like that. And that was coinciding with high copper prices and things like that. So I'll stop there um, for now. And um, <laughs> that was probably a, a yeah. lot, yeah. but it it's interesting because the, the Dumas, um, is a much larger structure than the building that um, we see in the red light district in Bozeman, but it's a much larger city. Yeah. There's more money. And these were properties that in a lot of cases changed hands, like the, the cribs across the street, the Blue Angel cribs changed ownership a lot, even though they stayed cribs. The Dumas stayed in the hands of the, the Nadu brothers um, until 1925 when Joseph actually died. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask actually a quick architecture and material question? Yeah. Because the Butte is, or the Dumas in Butte is, um, you know, I, I think at least, you know, when, when we roll up to it, you, immediately you're struck by how beautiful of a building it is. And it's made of brick. But is your building made out of brick? It is. And is yeah. there something to that? Yeah, and I think that that brick really signified uh, a, a town that, especially here in the West, that was established, it was going to stay put, it was going to be successful and flourish. Mm -hmm. And so all these buildings, like our building in Bozeman, they definitely wanted to build it out of brick because that really sh um, showed that this town was going places. And yeah. so same with Butte. I'm sure that brick was an important built a way to build these buildings yeah, yeah i think so, there's an insurance yeah. issue too right. yeah. and i think given what's going on inside and people smoking and cooking and everything mm -hmm. yeah you know you're it's an investment mm -hmm. and these were considered very valuable businesses and properties and maybe also and, and i know we'll get to this a little bit later but speaking to the culture in this mm -hmm. area and the violence that could be going on and the dynamics between the prostitutes and the police when we went to the archives in butte we learned about beverly snodgrass yes. who had her brothel burnt down by the police oh. so brick also mm -hmm. could potentially yeah. help prevent actually absolutely yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah wow we could talk about this forever <laughs> <laughs> so so i know chelsea when you started researching um this for haunted mountain theater um, you had a lot of questions mm -hmm. about the history of prostitution. So yeah. uh, I thought you might want to ask Crystal some things about just, as you were saying, what it was like to yeah. imagine yourself, what these women's lives were like. Absolutely. And I think what originally compelled me, of course, there's that idea of like putting ourselves in that position. Um, but I feel like in general, a lot of times when, you know, brothels and prostitution and all of this is brought up a lot of times it's talked about by men mm -hmm. and it's very salacious and very wink wink and ooh, isn't it so like oh the know, good old days yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and 
my thought was uh, maybe it was like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and it was really really important to us to to Ryland and I that we centered our story on the women. And even though we knew that would be harder, because of course we're not you know, prostitutes from 1955 Butte and we're not historians either. That would really take a lot of effort and, and research and speaking with experts such as yourselves and Michael Fox and um, and all of that. Uh, but we really, really wanted to try. We thought it was a really, really important effort to try to put ourselves in that place and, and explore who these characters might be, like Eleanor Knott and Dirty Mouth Jean and Bonita Farron and all those people. So uh, Crystal, maybe you could tell us a little bit about from your research, what was it like? Yeah, so, you know, and I think Chelsea, when we moved our offices into this historic brothel, we had the same questions because we hadn't focused in on research on prostitution before that really, but we took a deep dive because we wanted to, um, interpret these women's lives in a really accurate way. And so we did the deep dive and we learned a lot about the women who lived in our building, but also the women who lived in the whole red light district. And we really focused on other towns in the West as well in Montana specifically. And so we have now a much better understanding. And I just want to, you know, say that there is kind of that stereotypical version of this woman, of these women who worked in this, in this field and, and did sex work, but we try to really interpret these women in a way that kind of just showcases exactly what their lives were like. And our tagline for extreme history is history isn't pretty. So I'm just going to start by saying that mm -hmm. <laughs> because these women's lives were not pretty, but to, to kind of set that up, I want to just talk about the hierarchy mm -hmm. of prostitution in, you know, in Bozeman, but also in Butte and throughout the West and throughout the nation at this time. Um, and most of our information is focused more in the West because prostitution in the West and the East were somewhat different. But um, in the West, we, you know, we did have these parlor houses like the Dumas and the house that we have in Bozeman. These were definitely parlor houses. These were places where men would come in and feel like they were in their own house. And so, um, so that was a real, they, they did that, that architecture was very deliberate and because they wanted these men to feel at home. And so these parlor houses were places of luxury and they were beautiful and they were expensive. So kind of the next step down was houses that weren't parlor houses, but they weren't cribs like you were talking about, Nancy. They were more kind of just run-of-the-mill houses and um, buildings that had lots of rooms. So that was kind of the next step down. Of course, the price went down a little bit and, it, and the services were not as long or as luxurious. The next step down was cribs. And a crib is basically just a, a very small room that has a bed and a wash basin. And that's kind of um, the architecture that we see a lot in the West, um, especially in Butte. We see that a lot. We see that in Bozeman. We had these buildings were, that were just built, like Nancy said, with a door and a window, a door and a window, a door and a window. And each of those were just little rooms and services were pretty quick and those were usually the cheapest well they were fairly cheap um, on the next rung down was where Chinese women worked and of course I just want to clarify that you know the women working in the parlor houses and in these houses were this was their choice 
often, most often to work in these buildings and to work in these places. But Chinese women, it was not, that was not mm. the case. It was not their choice to work in this profession. They were trafficked into that. Yeah. Okay. So they were trafficked in, they were oftentimes sold in China, brought over to San Francisco, auctioned off and brought up to Butte or Bozeman or Virginia City or these other places. And they were often auctioned off for four to $600, which in you know the 1880s, 1890s, that's a lot of money. So, um, and so then they were brought in and they were placed in one of these cribs and often worked to death. And we have um, in the Bozeman newspaper, we have a few articles that mention that, you know, a Chinese woman who was working in the underworld, which is what they called it, um, committed suicide. And so, you know, it's pretty horrific. Yeah. 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 That's a question about that. So if they were trafficked in and sold, does that mean once they get to the crib, they're not making money they're themselves? They're making no money. They're wow. making no money. Where slavery. the women, it's slavery. Yeah. It's, you know, Sex they were slavery. enslaved, yeah. they were enslaved mm-hmm. in these places. Mm-hmm. And of course, the women above them were making some money. They weren't making a lot of money either. The madams were the ones who were, who were making the money. Um, and so that's a very small portion of the, all the women doing this work. So that kind of gives you, that kind of sets us up for the context of, of these women's lives. Wow. Yeah. And, and what a downer, Crystal. Yeah, I, know. I, I know, I know. But you mentioned a, a lot of them are, you know, you mentioned this one woman who there's an article that she committed suicide in the yeah. Bozeman paper, but you also have done research, Crystal, of how many of these women have died of some sort of drug overdose. Probably they've become addicted along the way because of the horrific circumstances that they were living in or they had contracted some other diseases so um i think you even have a little bit of research we move to that next slide and maybe you could speak to that so we know there was was violence but but as you say it's not just violence from the men that they had to worry about there's all these other issues yeah so this slide um is research that we did taken from about 1885 to 1922 in Bozeman. And there's a death, there's a, a book at our Clerken County Recorder's Office that lists all the deaths of everyone from 1885 to 1922. And so I just went through this book and every time, and each person is listed by their occupation. And when there was a woman listed with the occupation of prostitution, I noted that. And so these are the women who died from 1885 to 1922, whose occupation was listed as prostitute. And so you can really just see, you know, the different things they were dying of. Suicide, um, Jesse Smith's suicide, Lillian Stewart, um, overdose of morphine, Hattie Hayes, 29 years old, um, necrosis of the sacrum. She died of sepsis, which is kind of an infection of the blood. Gertrude Jenkins, 1908, 23 years old, a bacterial infection in the bloodstream, sepsis again. Um, you know, you're seeing some some patterns forming here, aren't you? So a lot of times they're dying of um, diseases that were a result of an STD. Right. And then also you're seeing um, deaths from overdose of morphine, alcoholism. So that's how these women were dying. Um, and they were dying young, 29 years old, 20 years old, 23 years old, 34 years old. Lizzie Woods, who I'm going to talk a little bit about later, um, again, died at the the old age for a madam. She was a madam of 65 years old. She died of nephritis, which is an infection or inflammation of the kidneys. And I asked a doctor one day, yeah. I said, 
you know, what is nephritis? Because we don't really use that terminology anymore. And he says, it's hard living. <laughs> it's death from hard living. Yeah. And so she oh, probably gosh. should live a hard life. You know, and a lot of these women were addicted drugs, to alcohol, drugs and yeah. alcohol. I wonder, could it be related to like a UTI or something like that? Like, no, nephritis, nephritis probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Okay. Yeah. So, I don't know anything about but I'll bet she, But yeah. I'll bet she had UTIs. <laughs> I would bet you <laughs> that she had them throughout the course of her life. Come on. Yeah. We all know what yeah. that's like. You know? Miserable. Of yeah, of course. Oh, God, that's awful. And um, we also know, right? And, and we learned about this a little bit from our guide when we went to Butte, which we'll talk about. Right. Um, and, and I hadn't, I don't know why, but I hadn't really thought so much about this, but also the aspect of, you know, pregnancy yes. and abortions and botched abortion abortions. So I'm sure women were dying of those. There yeah. could be health related issues too, related right? to that too. Or yeah. maybe, I mean, could you have taken some kind of potion by accident or something mm-hmm. or taken too much of something that you thought might give you an abortion and right. I don't know it right. could end up it could end up harming your health absolutely right absolutely right. yeah you know and the you know the number one question that people ask so we do a walking tour red light district walking tour and people always ask how did these women prevent pregnancy and so there's all these things that they were doing to prevent pregnancy which were probably causing some of these problems that are listed in their deaths as well so oftentimes they would douche with vinegar or carbolic acid Mm. or a little later on Lysol Mm. and you know that is not good for your vagina Lysol (laughs) or or anything in there no I know or they're taking herbs that they're getting you know from folks so there's all there's so many exactly different kinds of things so sometimes there were physical um barriers they would try to use we we talk about the introduction of condoms a little bit but a lot of times it was these douching methods that were very um challenging or that's something they were ingesting to promote Uh abortion so health-wise but crystal how did some of these women come to be sex workers do you think have you been able to get in find anything out about that yeah and you know we have a colleague uh, mary murphy who did her master's thesis on on prostitution in butte montana And she talks about this in her master's thesis. And so she says, you know, that oftentimes these women come from homes that were poverty stricken. I mean, you know, at this time that we're talking about the 1870s, the 1880s, these family, there was a lot of families that were just really hard on their luck. And so probably a lot of the women came from those families were trying to um, make a living, not just for themselves, but for their families that were um, having issues. There was no social security. There was no Medicare. There was no, nothing to fall back on in these days for families that were um, living in poverty. And so, you know, if you came from a family like that, this was one of your only options. You could also work as a woman in the 19th century in as a teacher. You could work in domestic service. You could work in a household doing kind of housework and child care for families. You could work in factories, but none of those jobs paid you a living wage. Mm -hmm. And so there was no way as a single woman to work in a job where you could make a living wage unless you had help from family or a husband. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these women would find this out. They'd start working in a, in a factory situation and they wouldn't be able to feed and clothe themselves. And so then a gentleman would come up and say, Hey, you want to go on a date? 
you want to go out for a nice dinner? And this woman is probably like, yes, I haven't had a nice dinner for weeks. And so she'd go on a date and she'd go to dinner and it was really nice. And then he'd say, you want to go for dinner again? And, and maybe he'd give her a gift. Mm. And so, and then maybe the next time was, you know, there was something in return for these gifts that was happening. And so that's how a lot of women kind of fell into prostitution mm, is mm-hmm. through kind of going on these dates and getting gifts and food and things they needed. And then maybe being told they had to repay in some way and they were indebted or something. Right. And so they fell into it, you know, and it was good money. It was really good money. But then they fell into the violence and the drug abuse and all the things that went with it. And the shame and the public, you know, social ostracism, I'm sure. So that's a lot of, Yeah, Yeah, and I, I think it's probably tempting sometimes to say, well, was this profession empowering, right? right? Because you are able to make a little bit more money. Maybe you could have a little bit of a nicer lifestyle. Maybe you could have nice things, but of course you're subject to all of this violence and and we wouldn't ever want to idealize it in any way because I think by all accounts, it was pretty horrible. I mean, I'm sure there were nice moments and, and we kind of see glimpses of that here and there, but in general, it's not... really something that somebody would want to grow up doing necessarily and and I and I and I but it is a complex issue yeah it is really Mm -hmm. complex and so you know maybe there was some agency that these women had certain women in certain places at certain times right um so because some would take their wealth and then do something with it and I think mm -hmm. there was probably that knowledge that occasionally some women were able to put their money into jewelry, valuables, or other things they could take yeah. with them or become property owners. We know some of those, but that seems to have been really not the norm, but maybe that was the idea. But I want to ask you another question about some women fell into it, maybe on these dates or did madams ever um, bring women in, yeah. in in a different way into the profession? Were they responsible also? Yeah. So, you know, they, women were trafficked in, um, of course, Chinese women were trafficked in, but other young women were, were, there was, there was sex trafficking in the 19th century, just like there is today. There probably always has been through time. Right. But um, there's one example from the Bozeman red light district that I want to speak to because it really gives a good example of how this works. So there was this woman, Lizzie Woods, that you know, she's the one that I mentioned a few minutes ago that died when she was 65 years old. She was a madam in Bozeman, and she was probably worked her way up into that madam position. She probably was a prostitute first working in Bozeman. She came to Bozeman in the 1870s, probably started working as a prostitute. She bought a house in Bozeman's Red Light District in 1886. She actually owned her own house. And she lived in that house until she died and when she was 65 years old in 1918. And so she often had a few women who worked at her house. Well, in 1901, there we know this from the local newspapers, um, this case came to court with Lizzie Woods because Lizzie Woods would often go back to St. Louis, Missouri. On one of her trips, she met this young woman who was 14 years old, very young, very young. And she encouraged her to come back to Bozeman, Montana with her to help her um, care for her daughter. Mm. 
be a companion for her daughter. Well, Lizzie Woods didn't have a daughter. <laughs> so this was a line. Complete ruse. Complete ruse to get her back to wow. Bozeman. She brought her back to Bozeman, set her up in her house. And then, of course, this girl, her name was Maud Ross. Maud immediately understood what was happening. And she had enough um, wherewithal to go and find the sheriff and tell him that she had been brought back for immoral purposes. And so the sheriff got her out of the house and promptly arrested Lizzie Woods. And so Lizzie Woods was um, um, posted bail for $500, got out, went to court. Um, a jury was summoned. She went to court and they went through a court proceeding with this. Um, they called it at that time, white slavery. So okay. that's what the, that was the terminology that, um, that they were charging Lizzie Woods with is with white slavery, which we call today sex trafficking. And so they charged her with this. They went through a um, court process and she was charged with that offense with with um bringing this girl here against her will not really against her will but for immoral Look, yeah. purposes yeah, yeah false yeah. offenses mm -hmm. so guess how much she was she didn't go to jail she was fined 150 dollars plus um fees and then the ticket they wanted her to pay for the ticket for Maud ross to go home on the train probably two hundred dollars total wow of course lizzie woods just plunked that right down and went back <laughs> to work yeah problem. problem right you know? wow so, um so of course you know she was charged with this offense but it was no big deal to her right and she probably did it again the next time she went to saint joseph missouri you know so well and the hypocrisy too because you know so many of these men that would have been involved as police or sheriffs or mayors or whatever of the city, these town fathers were people that would be frequenting the red light district and, yeah. and having relations with these young women. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. The, the so, dynamics between the brothels and the police are from what we've gathered from our brief research and just in our discussions, pretty, very intertwined, very intertwined, pretty awful. I mean, we know in Butte that they would have to pay the police in order to come and protect them, mm -hmm. which is just bizarre. And Beverly Snodgrass's brothel was reportedly burned down by the police when she didn't pay them. So just the speaking to that, um, you know, violent and I mean, it, of course, we know I mean, I don't know how much I can say here, but the police have a complicated and sorted past right. in and, this country, and interrelationship you know? with yeah. these red light districts. Um, and they're not always there to protect you. Yeah. Right. They're Unless you're, you're paying, you. but we won't, we'll just leave that yeah. there that we <laughs> yeah. know these historical cases. Yeah. So, so Chelsea, let's, yes. let's talk about where we were last Sunday. Cause oh my gosh. I know you and Ryan probably went Earth. before, but you and I, you set up a great um, chance for us to go and tour the Dumas. So yes. yeah, let's talk my about that time going. Rylan and I had already gone three times and once with Michael Fox, uh, we arranged a tour with Ted Ackerman. Yes. Big shout out to Ted yes, Ackerman. He is awesome. Yes. What's his choice called? The mule, the mule, mule, mule tour. Mule tours. He People didn't bring mules. Totally. No mules. <laughs> that was disappointing. I don't know where that, right. <laughs> I would have ridden it through the brothel, but, Absolutely. but he, um, he had so much historical knowledge. Yes. Uh, about the place and he's been I think actively cleaning it out well anyway we'll let you talk to Ted on your own but yes, go ahead. this is a man who really loves the Dumas brothel uh, so you know we were all very much at home and geeking out maybe not uh, your mom but maybe not we my mom. were my mom yeah she was like wow you really 
history, don't you? Like she kind of had a a cap to I her. I think interest. she was creeped out by some she, of the room. I think yeah, so too. I know, I, I know, so understandably. And it is creepy. And and you know, we talk a lot about the the hauntings, right? Yes. It's pretty famous for you know, for those who are maybe not so interested in the history, they come to it for the hauntings. The hauntings and, and the feeling of presence. There. Yes. yes. And, we, and we should say not to kind of set up any false expectations. It's not open to the public. Yeah. Um, there was a time when you could arrange tours with the owners who came weekly. Uh, they live in Eastern Montana. That's not really going on right now. So, but you can find Ted Ackerman and if he's available he can take you through um it's not really open as a an actual museum right now it has been at other points in its past um but right now it's just sort of there's a couple of guys in Butte that have the keys and if you can find them they will let you in and they will tell you about it and um it's my favorite thing to do <laughs> and, uh, and and a lot of it yeah. is is left as it was yes. so it operated as a brothel uh -huh. until 1982 as yep. we said but there's parts of it that probably haven't been used for much longer yep. and they really are very much intact and they yes. found things in walls and yes. under things as they've been yes. cleaning it out in artifacts so we should talk yeah. a little bit about that yeah and, and I just want to say maybe also we could speak to this too the sort of general impression you know I went and expecting to be very spooked and to feel things like poking me and, and pushing me down the stairs and stuff or even goosebumps or goosebumps yeah, you know okay, because okay. that's the tv shows or maybe a feather boa tickling the back oh, of your I neck wish. i know i mean i didn't feel ever anything like that and instead when you walk in i mean you know of course it's in many ways left um you know untreated and there's there's stuff everywhere but it's, it's beautiful it's a mess it's beautiful it's a mess. mess it's, it's a, a beautiful, beautiful mess, mess. yes absolutely and that's why i love it so much yeah. you know because you walk in and the light is shining from mm. the skylight you oh, know all beautiful. of the rooms are around the sort of central skylight and it i i feel yeah. nice i feel Let's, like yeah why don't yeah. we go through our pictures yes. first oh, and yeah, then we yeah, can yeah. try to react to them exactly. as we go so mm -hmm. let's just yeah go back one rylan just and then yes. we'll go yes yeah, so there just see this is the 1929 photograph and the 1931 map showing that the Dumas is all the way back to the alley now. And there's the, the if you can see under the red arrow, those things on top of the roof are the skylights you were mentioning. Right. So, so right beautiful. there at Mercury and then up the street from that to the left is the, the Windsor and the Victoria um, hotels, uh, but really brothels are mm -hmm. still operating at that time. So then yes. let's go to the next slide so we can start looking at um, some more of this. Okay. Yes. So, um, you know, what we're seeing here are actually three different uh, floors, floors of the building, which is, yeah. which totally getting back to the hierarchy. Yes. I feel like mm -hmm. that's a really good example. So mm -hmm. yeah, talk yes, about so that, that a little picture. Um, it's actually uh, facing the other direction. So you, when you walk into the door and the front door, you have this red carpet from who knows what God time, knows when 70s, yeah. 50s, I'm not sure. And then we have this door window door window yes. thing happening and this is where as I understand it according to, to Ted um and maybe Ellen Baumler as well yes. this is sort of the kind of like the the mid price level like when you walk in this is for maybe like your more like middle class um clients and so what we're seeing are the doors yeah. and windows that mm -hmm. was from a later remodel they said that that were turned into those mid-level cribs mm -hmm. originally when it was built in 1890 
big bars oh, and parlor yeah. houses where people ate. Mm-hmm. There was a cook, there was a whole big kitchen in the back. Yeah. So it was originally basically that whole parlor house style. Mm-hmm. And then later, yes, it turned into these mid-level cribs. Yes. And we forgot to mention too, when you walk into the right is a bar. Yeah. Or there would have been a bar. Yeah. Which so, I think they should bring back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. But then there are, then, is there an upstairs. So uh-huh. talk about that too. So there is an upstairs and um, it's so interesting looking at these pictures because I really feel an affinity to these women, especially since, you know, having had a hand in helping to write our play with Rylan and spending so much time here and learning about them. And so uh, we've come to to know, to whatever degree you can know, Eleanor Knott, the madam uh, from the 1950s. And Eleanor Knott would have lived up here. This was- She was uh, fancy. She was fancy. And apparently beautiful. And beautiful. Although what's really difficult is if you go to the archives or if you're trying to tap into what I'd say kind of professional historians or, or serious right. researchers- they don't have any pictures of her. Right. Ted has a picture of her or what he believes to be a picture Which of is, her. it's a drawn <laughs> thing. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And then there's an, another guy, uh, Chris Fisk, who we work with sometimes. Right. Lovely, a former history teacher. He has a, a, what he thinks is a picture of her, but no one has ever been able to say this is her. So, uh, you know, you want to be able to see what she looks like, but yes, we do know that she was wealthy. She had many jewels and she owned a Harley Davidson and, uh, some, some say sources say red convertible, others Mm. say pink, Mm -hmm. but probably a flashy car. Um, and she lived upstairs. So there's this, um, almost like a studio apartment where there's like a living area up here. And then there's also a bedroom where she reportedly, died of um what the coroner's report says was a uh, coronary occlusion which is of course a heart attack we're not sure if that's true but so Eleanor Knott's room would be there and then also we learned that sort of Eleanor or the madam of the times second in command yeah so the, the two well. primary the madam the second command and then the more favored women, mm-hmm. the higher priced women. So that was definitely, and that, that railing that you're seeing, they said there would have been something there. This was put in later, but that you can see down to mm-hmm. the entry level, the main floor where the red carpet was, but then you've got those skylights right above you mm-hmm. and the amount of light. It was beautiful. It's a it's beautiful, beautiful space. I would have rented out a space up there. Exactly. And I the feel rooms really were, good yeah, up there. I know, I like, know. It's weird. Ladies, let's hang and out. You have an incredible view. Yes down of, of the rest of Butte but yeah then, what about yeah we didn't go to the third photo this is scary so this is terrifying yes um yes and uh so the the lower level and and it may or may not be the lowest level but right. what is sort of open to Correct. us and what, what is known to history to be the lower level um is where the um how would we say like it's the lower price yeah oh yeah and it's door window door window but windows only onto the interior yeah it's dark it's foundation walls and I've got some other pictures later but these are where later when they had to go underground because um the threats of prohibition and all these other things they could literally go through those underground tunnels that were built to have the steam go out from the center of a street to heat all the houses those steam tunnels then they could connect to these underground doors and they could come in either through the back through the laundry or the front where there would have been another bar in the basement right Mm -hmm. and then there were these these cribs where there was no sink Mm -hmm. right no running water in the corner 
just a bit. Yes, they did have buzzers, so you yes. could buzz if there was an issue. Mm -hmm. But upstairs, you can see the plaster on the walls mm -hmm. um, that's in relief and painted, and There's really intention to making it really beautiful. Yeah, and even the rooms inside had nice furniture and were big and spacious, and all had light. And then in the basement, it was just Business. gnarly. Ooh. <laughs> so now, tell me about the other photo that's on here, the, yeah. the Blue Range. Is so the building that was taken down. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. So that building was across from the Dumas and it on Mercury Street. It is no longer there. It was taken down a couple of decades ago. And it um, as you can see just from the outside, even though it's all boarded up, door window, door window, classic crib on the bottom, those women would have been sitting in the window or tapping on the glass, and they would have been in full height, and then you could come in the door. And then there were cribs on the top. On the second story, you would have had to enter off the alley, off the back. So this is the one built specifically to be a crib, not even trying to hide it in the alleyway. This was right on one of these main streets, and Mercury Street. Right across the street from the Dumas. Right across yeah. from the fancier yeah. ones. So if yeah. that's all you could afford, you mm -hmm. went over there. And so that seems more like what I think you would have been getting in the, in the basement, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. just horrible. And then later there was a high school down the street and we heard oh. some... Horrible yes. stories about lunch specials. Yeah, the, apparently um, Ruby Garrett. Like, let's go. Yeah, let's see some more uh, yeah, photos from the inside. Too. Oh, okay. And we'll get to that mm -hmm. really quick. Yeah. So out the back, <laughs> right? Picture of me. Yeah, out the back <laughs> is is where when they built on the extension of the first floor mm -hmm. cribs and they they changed the first floor, it went out to Venus Alley, mm -hmm. and so there would have been women here, and this backed on to all the saloons yep. where Dirty Mouth Jean yep. ran um, her saloon and things all on Galena Street, and so they you would have walked up and down here, and where all that metal is behind Ted, Ted's in the silver hair and the dark top next to your mom, <laughs> yeah. and um, like closing her arms because she's freezing, right, <laughs> and um, and all of that that was during World War II. They used metal to completely close that off, although later they cut that that hole in the Dumas, you could still get in through a, a metal door with a slide window. But those were all cribs that were door window, door window, and women would have sat there in the windows off the alley and men could have walked right in off Venus Alley. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so we should, let's go to the next one. Cause that's a picture mm. of one of the cribs that would have yes. opened off. Um, Gorgeous. And after like, this like, one, let's talk about your letter. Yeah, let's go yeah. to the next one, Ryland. So this one is though, in comparison to that dingier room, this is what upper story rooms look like. And you can see a lot of light coming in, really nice rooms. And then a nice flush toilet that would have mm -hmm. been shared up there, sinks in the corner. Um, and then and Ted kept commenting about the yeah. sink level. Yes. I don't know if we want to share that, but he was saying that the upper level sinks were standard height. Versus the lower level, which were lower because men would pee in them. Or, and, or women or would have or, washed in them. Yeah. They would have been used yeah. as sort of that kind of bathing as facility. Right. So yes. upstairs, they were proper sinks <laughs> in the rooms for water. And then you had lower. And you could then ring and buzz for, for food and yeah. stuff to be delivered. So let's go to the next one. Sorry, Ryland. just very briefly. Oh. That room with the red bed yeah. is the room where... Um, Eleanor not would have slept where she okay. uh, supposedly was found dead. Oh yes, yeah, uh. yeah. <laughs> this is showing you the interior of rooms down yeah. in the lowest level, and you can see there's kind of a chamber pot by this window that would have opened onto this, and then where that yellow chair is behind it, you can see the foundation wall in the basement. So they wouldn't have even had 
proper plastering or wallpaper because all the rooms upstairs wallpapered plastered linoleum floors you had some of that downstairs um but not very nice and you just basically had a, a space for a wash basin and then a bed behind a curtain and according to ted a lot of what we see in these pictures are original to the dumas right so if you look at the image all the way to the right for example i believe he said everything besides the money and one other thing were original so he pointed out it's hard to see in this picture yeah. but there's a really lovely sweet little bird cage yeah um in the corner that is kind of to the if you were lying in the bed to the left of the bed yeah um and which i i found really interesting and, and kind of it's a kind metaphor of yeah. and you know, the bird in the cage and, yeah. then, and then he also showed us down here probably what we thought was one of the most amazing artifacts that you have transcribed. So let's, yes. let's talk about that. So Ted pulled out this framed piece of, you know, crumpled up paper that had been unfolded with uh, barely legible uh, writing um, from 1917. And I'm just going to read it. It's dated June 7th, 1917. And it says, Dear Sarah, I love you. We will have this child together. I will quit the mine soon. I will get you out of the Dumas. We will move away and have our family. We will start over. I love you, John. Mm. And what was the year of that letter? 1917, June 7th, 1917. And Ted told us that just after that, later that year, within a month or so, he said uh, that was when there was a, that huge mine disaster that Michael knows the name of. The speculator mining disaster in Butte where so many men died. Yeah. And so we don't know, right? If this letter is. Yeah. I mean, when, when I first saw this letter, I was like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. This is the most. And, and if this is authentic, I mean, what an absolute what a treasure. Yeah. Um, I and did tragedy. see it on ghost hunters when I watched it this morning. Oh, <laughs> uh, so, so that makes know, us a little, little like, nervous. You no, know, with a grain of salt, but um uh you know I don't know if we could ever do any kind of analysis on it or something but it would be fascinating yeah. and it and it is it is sort of the story we always think about that a minor would have fallen in love with one of these women that fell on hard times and had to find herself trying to make a living but really she's pregnant there's love he wants to get her out and then you wonder if this was a real person what happened to her if he died in that accident I know. And so actually, that's... there is a Sarah that we have researched um, and also that they referenced on Ghost Hunters. I'm so sorry. These are my sources. Um, but in our research... Is the Ghost Hunters online where other people can watch yes, it if they it want? Ghost okay. Hunters. It's Ghost like Hunters, the Dumas episode, Brothel, Brothel yeah, edition, there's like a like million that. seasons. Okay. And yeah, you just look for <laughs> Dumas Brothel. And it's literally just people who are like... Uh, actually, I, I will say... And I don't think this is quite a, a, a detour. It was really shocking. At one point, the host goes, in order to get these ghosts, the, the ghosts of the, you know, wealthy men who haunt this brothel, we need to bring them exactly what they're looking for, women. And they have four no dress as like no. they have corsets on. No. Yes. And they put them in the various rooms and they're sitting there in the bed. Ooh. And then it's like, you know, it's like that. Uh, uh, so it's, 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 you know, me proud of you for making it through that episode. <laughs> so 
much. It was really difficult. Um, and uh, uh, I forgot why I even brought this up. Brought this up. Oh, Sarah. <laughs> so Sarah in our, in our research, yeah, they do talk about Sarah, and they they say that this Sarah is the same Sarah who, in stories of the Dumas brothel, um, allegedly killed herself. Mm-hmm. So they make the connection that this Sarah killed herself after this happened, but. We don't know if that's true. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yikes. Right. Um, we should probably keep moving on to the, the I just, yeah. I yeah, I would like to, but before we move on totally, I just wanted to say, could you tell us a little bit more about Eleanor before we yes. move on to some of the artifacts that we have yeah. from the museum and, and from the Dumas? Yeah. Well, I am eternally fascinated by Eleanor and I kind of want to like quit my job and pursue a PhD <laughs> and trying to figure out who she actually was because there is not a lot of research on her and most of our research was done with like google.com and going and also going to the butte archives archives, (laughs) we did and we asked i said really is there not a picture is there not an article so there is very very little on her and i wonder if it could be yeah you know that's right i feel your frustration right Right? but there's so much lore around her and um you know the central question about her is seemingly, you know, how did she die? So there's um, a lot of speculation out there and her, the coroner's report, which is, you know, you can Google it, you can find it. It's also at the Dumas brothel. It lists her death as coronary occlusion, which is a heart attack. We know that she was 36 years old, which I'm saying is maybe, I don't know. We don't hear of a lot of 36 year olds having heart attacks, but of course we know that it was a very tough life. Um, But we also know or slash have learned through lore it's it's kind of hard to tell exactly what's true and what's fiction um but seemingly what we do know is that she was the owner of the brothel she was the madam of the brothel for four years in the early 50s she died in february of 1955 and that her body was found in this room um and that the successor her successor was a woman named bonita farron who's also in our play and um there and ted was kind of getting into this too he what ted told us was that a will was found on her body right was that the first time you had both heard that no well what we had found in our research is similar was that the deed was signed over to bonita farron and so in our play not to do a spoiler but we we sort of suggest that maybe uh bonita you know signed it herself but we also kind of create a sense of like, we don't know if Bonita actually killed her. And Bonita was another woman who worked in the brothel. Yes. Okay. She was another, as I understand it, one of these top four Mata, or um, prostitutes. Um, and she, again, it's hard to tell what's true and what's fiction. So this is why I really want to try to get some hard evidence, right? But um, the story goes that her husband was potentially connected to the mob. So it could be that Bonita or her husband, or someone related to her husband, had Eleanor killed, so that then the deed, or the, you know, the the ownership of the brothel would go over to Bonita. We do know that Bonita was her successor. Um, Dirty Mouth Jean was also in the mix. We know that, well, we know, we know, quote unquote, we hear through, through lore, and it's also in our play that uh, Dirty Mouth Jean um, was, they didn't, she and Eleanor weren't exactly friends that maybe she could have been involved in having her killed. There's also this other element of, um, you know, stories say that she had this lover, that she had a married lover who was um, wealthy. It was a businessman in town. 
um, slated to run away together. So on this night, she had been packing her bags and planning to run away. She's found dead. The lover was also found dead. Yes, also, um, also pulmonary occlusion. Yeah, heart attack. Strange. I know. Um, yeah. According to Ted, Ted was saying, you know, um, uh, this guy actually died of a heart attack, but we don't really know that. Or maybe in, he's in that Ellen Baumler's yeah. account. They, she said that he died and that. Eleanor then committed suicide because right. he was so distraught. Right. And that's another story that, mm. and, and we don't, we don't really know. I mean, right. we know again that there was drugs and that there was alcohol. I mean, maybe she overdosed, maybe she was killed by overdose. I mean, we have absolutely no idea. But the right? ownership the and transfer are we have. kind yeah. of suspicious. Right. So yeah. And the two simultaneous heart attacks. Right. I mean, what a beautiful way to go. <laughs> Like if your lover has a heart attack at the exact same time, uh, but that's just I don't think not likely, right? And then also, you know, uh, to the story. Right. There's a story, which is why it fascinated us so much. But somehow, the, put the ownership and Eleanor not the ownership passes to Benita somehow yeah. without Eleanor signing it over, and then all of the things that Eleanor owns that you talked about. Yeah. What happened to those? Nobody has any idea. Mm. so her her wealth her her money her jewels her harley davidson her car wow wow they all disappear all right so the tax can do that you're gonna want to go see and i have my gloves on because we're gonna start talking about artifacts so so rylan let's do one more um slide we'll see artifacts from the dumas and then we'll look at the ones we have from the collection here okay so here's just a couple things we snapped photos of at the the dumas they have some things if you ever get in that they have found um and that they have on display and i believe a lot of what we photographed were things that had been found in the structure so in the upper left we have a braided whip that was found in one of the walls and i write about that at which point my mother said oh yeah what's that, what's for? that for and we declined to answer uh -huh. so on um in another one of the rooms is uh two examples of plug-in um electrified massagers and then a manual above it and then the the object itself that the manual is referring to is almost like this electrified pillow that you lay on that was also an electrified massager but not those um metal versions that you're seeing now we have some of those versions which have a manual that call it a vibrator that are here in Museum of the Rockies. So we'll we'll move to that in a minute. But if you look just below that, you see that there's some cream there and it says it's a cream to prevent, help prevent um, contraception, to work for contraception so that, you know, women would have used these things as a way to prevent getting pregnant. Um, there's some vaginal jelly pamphlet down there about products. There's other um, different kinds of bottles that would have had probably things you could take um, either to prevent pregnancy or for douching. So we're seeing a whole bunch of different artifacts that they had found in the walls and around the Dumas. And then we have some things yeah. in the Museum of Rocky's own collection. So we'll move to our overhead camera um, and have a look. So this is pretty spectacular here. And I don't know if we can even zoom in a tiny bit more, but this is actually one of those very same massagers probably from a slightly different year um, than the ones we saw there but pretty much the same design and from what we hear there were several different companies that made these and they were sold um, as vibrating massage tools that you would 
plug in, in this case, this is quite an old one. So you would screw it in the way you would screw in a light bulb into a socket. So they would have had either sockets hanging um, in a room or um, in a wall that you could have put this in and then quite a long cord. So then you could get it over to where you needed to use it. And then this particular one comes with all of these different attachments that you would just screw on so kind of like massagers today or those massage chairs if you ever get a pedicure that you sit in and then all the different kneading and tools but we do tend to find these often associated with brothels um, so even though the manuals themselves don't specifically talk about um, using massagers for um, sexual pleasure uh, it's pretty well known from these ears. So let me also open the other box that we have, which has a second one. These are all um, tagged and come from the collection. Really quick, did yeah. that seem, does that device seem pleasurable to you? It, that is a really excellent question. Chelsea, I just have to get it to you. You're going to have to be a guest again because you ask the best <laughs> questions in the most evocative way. Um, this looks like more like a torture device to me. Uh, I'm not running out wishing somebody would remake these kind of more <laughs> Victorian and early 20th oh. century. I bet if you had really sore muscles, like you were a minor and you needed some massaging, maybe this was a nice way that um, a woman could help you out. And again, this oh. also has the plug-in here. And then we do have a manual that's from a later model but we would love to show that to you too. And Michael's going to bring it over and here. While, while Michael's bringing that over, the first massager that you showed, Nancy, has a date of about um, 1905 to 1910. And then the second one was about 1902. And so, um, and then this manual is from 1917. So it spans, these are in use for a long time and, and we're not seeing a lot of change even in, in the way that the machine looks. And again, a lot of different companies were making them. So this is about the vibratory technique. Um, so Chelsea, there you go. Um, this is an electric vibrator. And then we have this woman here. And I think if we could maybe zoom in a little bit, I think it's worth I'm um, pretty happy. Ryland, she she's got a nice smile. She's got a fair amount of cleavage showing. And then she's got an attachment onto the vibrating massager right there on her breast. Yes. So wow. I'm I'm assuming that's just letting you know that there are other ways um, that you could use it. But they How do talk about all of these other conditions. Nephritis. And, and this was, was that our poor, they oh, might yeah. have had nephritis. it nephritis. nephritis yeah. Um <laughs> they might have had it for I don't know why you would use it for a sore throat, but they um they might have had it in doctor's office, but this was for home use. Um and so if you were lucky enough to have electricity you too could have a vibrator. So um, another one wow. of the artifacts we want to talk about, and, and should I bring this over here? Yeah, you can bring that Is this from too. an exhibit at Extreme History? Yes. So this is not- That's on loan or- Correct. This okay. is an artifact that is owned by Jennifer Hill, who is a, she teaches, she's a professor at Montana State University that teaches about women's reproductive health. And so this is from her personal collection. And this is a Mary Widow, Mary Widow's condom case. And this one says the three Mary Widow's condom case. And this was a very, very popular brand of condoms 
um, that was they um, this company started in the early 1900s and went in through the 1920s, 1930s. This case, this particular case is from the early 1900s. And it's hard to see there, but it does say three merry widows. And that refers to three condoms that would be held in this case. And these are reusable condoms. And so- the How exciting, <laughs> reusable, so ecologically friendly, yuck, I know, right? So yeah, yeah. you can kind of see the merry widows there. I say though, the case is, is very, lovely. it is. I mean, I feel like this would have been for, for high-end mm -hmm. condom use, um, maybe, where and, you, yeah. I think the idea of a reusable condom sounds like disgusting to us today, but um, I don't know, it does seem, Kind of the way things worked. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What would the condom and be so, made of? So the and, and the Merry Widows was a popular brand, and it was a more expensive brand because they were tested. So the Merry Widow condoms were tested to ensure that they had no tears or holes, and because testing was an expensive process, these Merry Widows condoms sold for a dollar for one of these tins. Mm. So how um, were they tested? And, no, don't yeah. answer that. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully they were just, you know, shining up, up against some light. And <laughs> but um, but in, con in contrast, there were a lot of other brands of condoms that were on the market that were not tested and oh. they were sold for a lot less. Okay. Um, but the Merry Widow was the one you wanted. And, and you know, if, I love you the know, name. Yeah. The Merry Widows. Merry Three Widows. Merry Widows. And yeah. do you think that actually, it, like, is that supposed to suggest, like, happy widow? Yeah. So so it was really, um, the term Merry Widow was commonly used to imply kind of an, a sexually experienced and very independent woman. And the term Mary traditionally had a sexual connotation. Oh. And this, um, and so this, you know, the, the Merry Widow condoms kind of be became known when you would say a merry widow that was kind of a mm. um a euphemism for condom you yeah. know because it became so popular. well you're not spoiling yeah. a woman she's already been married and had yeah. kids and so she's a widow so maybe there was also that idea that she could continue to enjoy a sexual life and so mm. somehow okay. the idea that maybe she could maybe yeah <laughs> boy what a weird old-fashioned notion i know <laughs> So, fun tonight. so we are winding down yeah. and I want to know uh, what the takeaways are uh, for for you both. And Chelsea, let's start with you because Crystal and I have talked a lot about sex work and prostitution. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> all of this has just made me want to know more mm. and just really want to be an advocate for digging into the past and trying as much as possible to... Um, to unearth these stories. I mean, I think probably a lot of it comes from the fact that there aren't a lot of records of these people, but I also wonder if a lot of the lack of knowledge comes from the lack of desire or or will to research these women and their lives. I'm not sure if it's a little bit of- I think that's maybe. a really good point though, but to think of them as women, not just prostitutes, as yes. whole women who had parents, who had relations, who had a life, who had, who, who had mm -hmm. desires, who maybe had children, all of those kinds of things. And to not think of them just as women who you paid to have sex with. I think it depends, you know, history now, everyone's doing history. It used to be men were writing history. So I think it has changed and we're learning a lot more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like how you talked about Chelsea kind of, 
you know, you guys did this research for the play, The Haunted Mountain Theater that you're doing, and you're presenting this in a way that, you know, you don't have all the facts, but you want to know more. And you're kind of tantalizing your audience with this history. So they are like, well, gosh, I want to know more about Eleanor. I want to know more about these women who worked in the Dumas. I want to know more about this history, this particular history. So I really like that. But, um, you know, and and the reason that we think it's so important is because what happens in the past is, of course, still happening currently, you know. And so we talk, we tell the story about Lizzie Woods and her trafficking this young woman. And, of course, that's still happening today. And so if we look back in the past and can understand how this happened, we can bring it to the to the present and really try to change what's happening as we move forward and better understanding these women and their work. And of course, prostitution has not gone away. We still have prostitution and sex work happening today. And it's a little bit different today, I think, than it was historically, but we can better understand the women and men and everybody who's doing this work today. Yeah. I mean, it's the oldest profession right? right. and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And I think similarly, of course, uh, issues of women's reproductive health yeah. and rights are extremely topical as well. Right. So and we that's why we want to talk about mm-hmm. the massager and the condom yeah. case, because those were big parts of um, people's lives historically and today, too. So mm-hmm. um, let's talk about it. Yes. Yeah. It, it's yeah. always going to be yeah. a concern or an issue, whether or not, you know, politically supported. Right. Right. Exactly. That, right. And so we think we should just talk about it. The more we talk, the okay. more we learn, yes. the more history. Yeah. Um, I just found the whole thing amazing, thinking about the difference between choosing sex work um, and having some agency to get into it and get out of it, potentially, versus, because we know that's true today as well, versus being trafficked into it or falling into it because you don't have another choice. And usually those people are ending up in the worst conditions. And I think the conditions are everything and how people are treated in those conditions. And so it's something we um, we just heard about happening in Bozeman and it's everywhere. And it's definitely something that is very topical and we should be talking about um, trafficking, women's health, sex work, all of it. Um, and with that, um, we're going to have to wind down our first uh, videoed podcast episode. Yes. So, um, Rylan, if we can go to the last slide, um, we want to say our thank yous to everybody. So thank you, um, Chelsea and Ashley, who we see, um, Chelsea, obviously there in the pink, and Ashley um, above her with the big dinosaur, looking like it's going to scoop her up, sort of like <laughs> King Kong. Um, Ashley had to leave, but you both helped set up this whole thing, and then you agreed to be our first guest, which is fantastic. And we look forward um, to the Haunted Mountain Theater and the Eleanor Knott story, which you and Rylan have put entirely together. And Rylan, we're so grateful to all the technical help today. Thank you so much. Um, Also a big thank you to Michael Fox and Melissa Dawn for providing access to uh, the Museum of the Rockies collection and bringing the artifacts up for us to use today. And then thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast and maybe this videocast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Thanks for listening today. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about the dirt dirt on on the past. past. Well, a big thank you again to the Museum of the Rockies for the use of this beautiful studio space. And thanks to Michael Fox and Melissa Dawn at the Museum of the Rockies for 
helping us with the artifacts. And thank you to our editors, Drink Pinnell, Sierra Thomas. Thanks to La Alegria for mixing the music and to Steve Durbin at KGBM and John Chadwell for help getting the podcast out in the world. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.